plans, or at least part of your plans. And we thank you that you have provided the indwelling Holy Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ to be our teacher. And we pray tonight that you would grant us a, a deeper and bigger picture of what salvation really means and give us a concrete picture from the text of the Noah story uh, that we can fill the imaginations with our hearts uh, uh, with, with this material. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I'd like to start again by <clears throat> reviewing. So if we do this enough times, everyone will remember it. Um, these events at the beginning of the scripture set up the rest of scripture. Uh, the, the handout that you got tonight uh, concerns the next one, the Noahic Covenant. But these three events here give you the creation, uh, who God and who man is, the sin issue, and what God does about the sin issue, the salvation. So, <clears throat> what I'd like to do tonight is finish that flood event. We've talked about the text, and we've talked about why Genesis 6, 7, and 8 speak of a global flood, and why this is profoundly embarrassing to biblical critics, <clears throat> or who, people who want to believe but have a problem of intimid being intimidated, um, and try to accommodate... Uh, we found we can't really accommodate and do justice to the text. We have to take the text at face value and let the chips fall where they may. Um, and then we got into, last time, the beginning of talking about what is it all about? What is the flood event all about? And it's all about God's judgment and God's salvation. And we've said that you can't have one without the other. Whenever God saves, he also judges. Whenever God judges, because he is a gracious God, he also saves. Those two are very close to each other. <clears throat> In fact, you can think of it this way. The Lord Jesus Christ is a Savior. And we stress that in the Gospel. He is our Savior. But anyone who seriously reads the Bible knows very well he's something else. He's also the judge. So, Jesus himself combines the two roles. He is judge and he is savior. He is the one who dies for sin and he is the one who is going to judge people who reject what he's offered them. He has the right to do that. He's the one that died and if you're going to do despot to what he has provided for us, he has a very, a very inherent right to say, sorry. Okay, so we also have stressed again and again these two pictures, and we go back to this again and again and again, lest we are, lest, lest we compromise in some of these basic points. Because, I, I iterate this in the notes, I said it last week, and I'll, you'll hear me say it several times tonight. You cannot correctly appreciate God's saving work if you do not, at the same time, appreciate his creation, who we are, who he is, and the issue of sin, and what that is all about. Because those are the things that set up the problem from which we are to be saved. So, we have got to understand those. And this is why an error in a perception of what salvation is always about is always, if you just dig a little deep, you'll find that it's really an error in these two areas here of creation and the fall. Because it goes back to what we have in the view of the Bible, where you have a creator who himself is good, who makes a creation that is good, and that the creation at some point after it's made originates its own evil by virtue of a rebellion against the creator. At that point, that's the story of evil. Now, that's a radically different story than what you get with the pagan view, where you have an impersonal continuum that always was evil. 
You can't get, mix those two things together. And every time you try it, it undercuts the whole story. So that's why I've tried to stress as a discipline to see the structure of the Bible, the deep structure. You can't let go of these things. There's this picture and there's this picture, and you can't mix them. So every time we look at the Bible and we see that we have a distinct difference between creation and the point at which sin entered the creation, we have a back limit on evil. There's the, there's the left side on the time scale. That's the bracketing of evil as far as the left side of the scale goes. The bracketing of evil on the right side we're going to get into tonight because that's judgment. So evil is bracketed between the initial rebellious act and God's judging finale. So evil, in this view, is bracketed. It has to operate within those limits. But that's a radically different view than this view that says evil just goes on and on and on infinitum. And you can't mix those. These are two distinct views of reality. They're two distinct views of who God is. They're two distinct views of what the universe is all about. They're two distinct views of what the issue of good and evil is. So, when we separate out, and that's why I've drawn that diagram, and go over it and over it and over it, hoping you, you won't forget that, because that spells a difference between the Bible and pagan thought in the rest of the world. And if you don't keep those two views straight, then when we come to the topic of, of salvation, we can't be straight. Can't be. What happens is this, that on the pagan basis, what you wind up with is you have this mixture of good and evil. You never can alter the mixture because it's always mixed. So what salvation turns into in this scheme, all salvation turns into is sort of making the good bigger than the evil. So you wind up with some sort of an 80-20% deal where you, you alter things, you make things more comfortable, but you don't ever deal with the issue of evil itself. That's an adjustment and fundamentally, all, all uh, attempts at salvation outside of the scripture are mere adjustments. They're not solutions. And because of this, in this view, something else begins to happen. And that is because the gods, remember that story, those two stories we had, the gods and the goddesses? They are good and evil. So your divine principle is contaminated with evil as well as the creature. And you have man here. But man is also contaminated. And they're contaminated in the sense that the good and the evil can't really be separated. They're just so mixed together. They can't be separated. If that's the case, then when I talk about not salvation but an adjustment type thing, then man can contribute to that. Man, by his own efforts, can add to that scheme because it's sort of um, like adaptation. We can adapt to things. And that's why every false gospel of every false religion inevitably gets man involved in the process. It is always human works that are meritorious and somehow involved in the process. And this is why when we go through these five points again tonight on what salvation is all about from the scriptural point of view, we want to feed the imaginations of our hearts with this story that's so simple a child can understand it. So very, very simple. You can sit down with a little model boat and explain this to a child. And yet, the story sets up salvation that can purify our theology as we read the Bible, can keep us straight in the pages of the New Testament, and we get all wrapped around the axle about this or that or something else to just relax, back off, and say, wait a minute, let me just think in my mind's eye of Noah and the flood. And that's a discipline. It's a discipline of using the richness of the stories of the Old Testament 
to nourish your souls and to keep our thinking biblical. That's what I love about the Old Testament. It's a neat place to go and take a bath in the imaginative waters of this, the, the theology of the stories. Children can remember these stories, and yet adults can contemplate the results of them for the rest of their life. So tonight we want to go through uh, five characteristics again of, we covered several of these last time, but I want to go through these five characteristics of biblical salvation. We said the first characteristic that you see in the story of Noah is that you always have grace before judgment. God works this way. And we said that is a vital principle in page 77 of the notes. And if you'll turn in your Bibles, because I want to show you that where the first occurrence of the word grace occurs, it's in Genesis 6.3. Genesis chapter doesn't mean that's the first occurrence of grace. I said in Genesis 6.3 that's the first occurrence of the word for grace. No, it's not Genesis 6.3, actually. 6.8. But Noah found favor, or there's the word, for grace in the eyes of the Lord. So grace occurs when there is a threatened judgment. Now let's go back to the attributes of God and, and think about this for a minute. Here's God, and we said that you know, He is omnipotent, He's omnipresent, He's immutable, He's eternal, He's sovereign, He's holy... He's love and he's omniscient. These attributes being more of his infinity and these kind of being more personal, but you can't totally divide them. One of these attributes here is love. That love was eternally exercised from eternity past and will be exercised for eternity future. That attribute of love can be exercised without us. The Trinity can love each other among the Trinity. So that love, like blood that circulates in the, in the circulatory system, that love circulates in the Trinity. So it, the God is not dependent on the universe for an exercise of this attribute. Now, people often think, and sometimes if you're a Christian, you'll be around these people and you'll get sort of intimidated, feeling, gosh, I have to... Why does, why does my religion got this Trinity in it? It makes it so complicated. No, no. It's the Trinity that makes God real and personal. Because if you do not have the Trinity structure in God, say you have a monotheism that is what we call solitary monotheism like Islam, now who does Allah love before he creates? Can Allah exercise his attribute of love toward any object outside of himself? Is there, are there no objects outside of himself to exercise it toward? And the answer is no, he can. And that's why solitary monotheisms usually tend to downplay the attribute of love. Not that they don't have it, they have it, but it's kind of downplayed. And in Christianity, it's very rich. And it's rich because it's exercised in the Trinity, long before God ever created. So you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the three in one who love one another. But now, that attribute of love at the point of creation can be exercised toward the creature until sin begins. Now, at the point when sin begins, we have a little theological problem. Because now, with God, we have these two attributes in collision, as it were, because the attribute of His holiness comes down here, looks at a sinful creature, and says, judgment. On the other hand, love looks down and says, but I love these people. So you have a sort of internal conflict going on deep within the, the very nature of God himself. And even throughout the pages of the Old Testament, this was really not resolved. There was promises to resolve it, but it was really not really resolved until finally the cross of Christ answers this, this problem, as we said in chapter 4, in the problem of evil. Well, we've looked at evil and we've looked at these things, but what we want to look at tonight is the fact that because the attribute of love 
wants to keep on exercising toward a sinful creature, it means that if you diagram it in time, if this is the origin of evil, and that's the termination, that's the judgment, when evil is separated from the universe and the universe is recreated, during this time interval, love exercised in this period becomes known as grace. Grace is the exercise of God's love toward those who don't deserve it. And that's what we mean by grace. And grace, in this regard, is as abnormal as evil is. Now, this sounds funny to say. What do you mean grace is abnormal? Well, when I, when I use that term, what I mean to say is that when, if, if we define grace first as God's love toward the sinner, when does he love the sinner? During the time when he's providing for the sinner. Does he always, forever and ever and ever, provide for the sinner? No. Isn't grace stopped eventually? That's the, the final judgment in the lake of fire. That's the part of the gospel nobody likes to hear. But it's a part of the gospel that's very necessary because it resolves this problem. Grace is as abnormal as evil is. Evil is limited and grace is limited. There is a day of grace and then the day of grace is over. Grace is a time when God opens the door. He opens the door to the sinful creature who will bow his knee to the Lord. And then the day's all gone. So that's what we mean when we say grace before judgment. We're talking about the right side of this timeline. This is the judgment. And grace is exercised up to that point. Prior to it and up to the point. Then it stops. And so we have grace in, in a small mini-scale. In Noah's day, grace before judgment. And that's why in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found, Noah found, but nobody else did. Because everyone else was in total disobedience. And you find the, the uh, personal hurt and grief and anger of God expressed so powerfully in the verses just prior to verse 8 that I kid you not, you can read commentaries on this passage and if you want to see somebody slide on grease, you ought to see what some of these guys do when they hit this one. For example, notice in verse 6. Some of you have an older King James. You'll notice what they've done to translate that verb in verse 6. Uh, in my translation, one of these new things. The Lord says, was sorry he made man on the earth. Well, that's sort of anemic. Um, in your King James, I think you'll see the word repent. God repented that he had made man on earth. I mean, this is a profound statement of what is going on in the heart of our God. So injured and so angry is he over what sin has done. That at this point, he is sorry he has ever made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Now, however we explain the problem of evil, it's data like verse 6 that you also have to explain. Yes, God let it happen, but not without being involved in the process. And in verse 7, he expresses his judgment when he says, I will blot out man whom I have created. And by the way, if you look at... Every one of the nouns in the objective clause of that sentence, there's the verb, I will blot out man whom I have created in the face of the earth. From man, and now see from that word from man to animals to creeping things to birds, there's four categories. If you just make yourself a note, don't have to go there now because of time, but those are the four categories exactly to a T that Paul in Romans 1 says men deify and idolize. Very interesting. Paul quotes from this passage. This passage is on Paul's mind in Romans 1. So we have grace before judgment, and that is easily seen by thinking of God counting down. Maybe that's a way, by remembering the story, you want some handle in your mind to get a hold of this idea. Think of the countdown on the calendar, where God had 120 years, and it's going to be a flood. 119, 118, 117, boom, and it goes down, down, down. The counters counting down. 
That's a picture of grace before judgment. On the one hand, we are thankful that the door is open, but on the other hand, we know it's not always going to be open. So the second principle that we saw in grace, we, we mentioned that last time, was what we call perfect discrimination, or you can call it divine, uh, if you really want to get back at the Darwinists who always talk about natural selection, uh, you can t relabel it as divine selection. Because what God does there is that if the first aspect of salvation, this thing is primarily about its attribute of love and how it resolves itself with evil, the second point that I've said that God perfectly discriminates between the saved and the judged, that has a lot to do with his attribute of holiness. Because the holiness is the standard that is used to evaluate. God will not compromise his holiness. We can yak yak from now until we're blue in the face about God's love. And we can come out, if we keep yak-yakking about it, independently of all the other attributes, we're going to come out with some sort of a, a little meany, mildly type attitude toward God. And it produces a very uh, disrespective, uh, shallow idea of God. Um, and I think if you look at, unfortunately, some of the hymnology of the church in the 20th century, you'll see that the theology of some of our music is very anemic here. Very anemic. But what we need to do to balance it is remember that this attribute of holiness is never going to be compromised. He will not, he cannot, and he never shall compromise that attribute. And that means that however he designs the plan of salvation, it has got to conform to that holiness. It will never be compromised. So he can love all he wants to. But the love has got to come up with some solution to the problem. And the solution can't be that he compromises his holiness. And that's why we said back in the previous chapter when people say, well, I don't see how a God of love can allow all this evil to happen. Well, you can turn that question right around and say, well, I don't see how a God of holiness can allow people into heaven. That question can be reversed. Nobody likes to do that, but it certainly can. It's just the other side of the coin, the other side of the moral dilemma. All right, so the second thing that we've said here is that the perfect discrimination shown by his criterion of separation has to do with his holiness. That's why what it is that separates is a righteousness that satisfies that attribute. And the, the righteousness that satisfies the attribute can't come from man because man's already contaminated. It's got to come from somewhere else. And hence, therefore, what saves us is not our works. It's not our glowing personalities. It's not our feelings. The only thing that saves us is the fact that we are credited with his own righteousness. All the rest of it is a result, not a cause. And every kind of false gospel you can find in church history, no matter what the cult is, you will always find something where man has got to get his little toe involved in the process. And somehow that becomes what justifies before God. And we had something called the Protestant Reformation that dealt with this thing. What was it that secures me before God? Certainly nothing myself. Any Christian who's been born again more than five and a half minutes knows very well that we have no righteousness of ourselves. Whatever righteousness we have, we've got it from somewhere outside of ourselves, and that has come from Christ. Hence, therefore, the Reformers spoke of the imputed righteousness of Christ over against the righteousness the Holy Spirit indwells, and so forth, and so forth, and so on. The point there is that if we have to meet this standard, we have to have something big enough to satisfy that standard, and the only thing that satisfies that standard is Christ's own righteousness. All right, tonight we move on to the third characteristic that we see in the Noahic uh, drama. And that is the fact that when God saves, he saves in one way only. So there's one way of salvation. And this shouldn't come as a surprise if, and I know before I was a Christian, I really resented this, quite frankly. When I was wandering around, the thing that really bugged me about the Christian faith was, why was it so exclusivistic? I mean, you talk to the Hindus, and they welcome anybody. I had a little group of Hindus used to be on the college campus, and I mean, you could be anything and be them. 
why? But the Christians always wanted you to believe in Christ as Savior, period. And it always appeared to me as kind of being arrogant until the Lord opened my eyes to who he was. And that is, if our God is holy, and we have to meet that moral criterion, then he's the only one that can design the plan. And if he's designed the plan, that's the way. It's not a matter of personal engineering. It's a matter of God's engineering. So, the idea that this is offensive is only because, if this, if this is your situation tonight, I can only say to you, based on my own working through this, it's only because you have not yet personally come to grips with a biblical view of God himself. And that's all my answer to that. If you have personally come to grips with a kind of God that speaks in the pages of Scripture, you will not have a problem here. But if there, you detect this sign of just grates you, then it's a signal. It's a warning sign that maybe you need some more thinking and praying to resolve this issue. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, we all go through this. It's not, you don't have to hide it. But this is something that we have to come to terms with until we are personally convinced that when God lays out a bridge across the chasm, he designs it, and there's not another bridge. How many arcs were there? Okay, goes back to that. In the Noah story, the, the ark that was designed, where did the design come from? And again, just to refresh our minds about the story and provide us with imaginative materials, look at chapter 6 again, verse 13. Just look at that passage. Let, it, let your mind soak in it for a minute or two here. In that passage, that's the passage where the blueprint was given for the ark. And you'll see what God said to Noah. Make for yourself an ark of wood. He gives it in verse 15. Look at the first sentence in verse 15 of chapter 6 of Genesis. Look carefully at that sentence. What does it say? This is how you will make it. Now, is there one plan or are there multiple plans? It's only one plan, right? Now, from what we've already seen about the ark design, why is there only one plan? Let's think about it again. Let's rehearse it in our minds. Let's get it firmly in our imaginations. Why is there only one design? Because of the nature of what the ark had to endure. What did the ark have to endure? A global flood. Had the global flood ever been experienced before? Was there any empirical database available for this engineer to build an ark capable of withstanding something that he had never seen before? How does an engineer do that? The ark was designed to meet something for which there was no empirical data. This is a, what we call a hot pox. It's something that only occurs once. And it's off in the future. It's beyond the event horizon of our, our, of our minds. So, going back to that diagram that we have, which I didn't lay out here tonight, but the diagram that I've shown ad infinitum until you're nauseated with it is the one with the limitations of human knowledge. And what we're saying is that this arc had to meet something outside of the limitations of human knowledge. Now, try to picture this, because it's easy to do. Just think of an engineer or a designer called upon, contracted by uh, a group of guys in before Noah. Okay, I see Noah building a boat. We want Bill one, too. He's building his over there. We're going to build ours over here. We're going to contract with so-and-so company, and we want you to build us an ark. Now, on what basis would the engineers in that company build the ark? What data would they use to build it? So, let's go back now to the nature of God and this aspect of why there's one way of salvation. God, besides being holy, he is also omniscient. And he has perfect understanding of what he is about to do. So, since God is holy, his holiness dictates that there be a judgment. That comes here. His omniscience tells he thoroughly understands his judgment and all of its implications. 
So, based on the fact that he is holy and is going to judge, and that he perfectly understands every aspect of what he's doing, out of this comes the plan of salvation. This is the plan. And it's the plan, because it comes out of his understanding of his own judgment. This is his act. This is the rationale, then, that the Bible gives us for one way of salvation. God and God alone understands himself. We don't. He understands himself well enough to know the only way we can be reconciled to him is to do it his way. So think of this when this problem comes up. If you, if you get confused someday in the future, just go back to the simple idea, visualize in your head Noah, and he's pulling out a blueprint, and he's saying, gee, where do I put this? It's 30 cubits by 50 cubits. And just think of this passage. And think of the fact that he got the drawings from somebody. Who did he get the drawings from? Right here. Okay, so that's one way of salvation. And that aspect of salvation focuses on this attribute. So now we've seen three attributes tonight. Grace before judgment is grounded on his love. The perfect discrimination, his ability to perfectly judge, there's no statistical judgment, there's an exact judgment, a divine selection that's based on his attribute of holiness. And the one way of salvation is based on his omniscience and understanding of himself. So he knows what he's doing. Now we come to a point four, which is on page 79. And this is something that we'll expand further in the next chapter, uh, and that is the fact that salvation involves creation, all of creation. Let's go back to the diagram we've drawn so often. Here is God. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's immutable. He's eternal. He's sovereign. He's holy. He's love. And he is omniscient. God creates, and this creation has man and nature. Two components. Now, this fourth characteristic we're looking at right here will correct something else that happens today in the gospel. We are usually, as Christians, written off by our neighbors, by our society, by our group that we are associated with, we tend to be written off because the non-Christian out there thinks when we talk about salvation that what we're really talking about is some sort of internal religious experience. That all we're discussing is something that is psychological. So the pagan's idea of salvation is that it's something inside there. That's what he thinks salvation's all about. A religious experience. Well... Yes, it is. But what do you notice is defective about this view if you look here? What does creation encompass? Just man or man and nature? It encompasses man and nature. And when man fell, was man lord of nature? Yes, he was. Now, here's a, here, follow my reasoning, because if you've been reading the chapters of Genesis, you should have this already in your head. But what I want to do is I want to put the beads on a necklace for you. I want you to see that it's not a pile of marbles, that all the beads are on a nice, neat, logical necklace. All the pieces fit together. Back in Genesis, we stressed that man was to subdue nature. Man was the Lord, little l, of nature. And you wonder, well, why keep stressing that? Why keep stressing subduing nature? Because of man's position over nature, as goes man, so goes nature. And when man fell, what else happened? Was it just a psychological, religious experience of Adam and Eve? Or did something outside of their religious experience happen? Something happened, didn't it? Death was introduced. Let's hold the place here and refresh our minds by turning the New Testament to the interpretation of the fall. So just we be sure that we're not exaggerating something. Let's turn to Romans 8. Here's Paul. He's drawing upon Genesis chapter 3, the event of the fall. Paul's talking about his environment. 
and everything in his environment. He's talking about suffering in Romans chapter 8, and he says, verse 18, 19, and 20. He says, I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation wakes eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to fertility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So, he witnesses to the fact that this structure that we observe back in Genesis carried forward to the second event, the fall. So, diagramming it now, we have man, we have man falling into sin, and we have the curse spreading on all of nature. So, man affects nature. Now, just think about what we're looking. Just think of what we're looking at here. This is the real ecological impact of man. It is, blows your mind compared to the little trivial stuff of dumping a coke bottle out the window on Route 23. We're not talking about pollution here. We're not talking about pieces of junk. We're not talking about uh, making certain species of animals go extinct. We are talking about the fact that, thanks to us, we have contaminated all of nature. And we contaminated not because we didn't have Asha around to help us not contaminate it. We contaminated it because we rebelled against our Creator. And we are the cause of the ecological disaster. In a far greater way than the ecologists want us to think. This is like the idea of judo. Somebody punches you, you know, you take it further, you knock them off balance. The ecologists want to trumpet about how concerned they are with, with the environment. Well, so are we, except we know what's the ultra-environment. It's God the Father. He's the ultimate environment. And because of the ultra-environment and the ultimate environment, we have a problem with the secondary environment. So we evaluate our secondary environment in terms of the primary environment. So we go one step further than the ecologists do. We end-run them to a primary source. Now, that's the fall. What do you observe in the Noah story? Now, let's just think about this. If the Noah story is picturing salvation, how does the Noah story pick up this structure and argue against the modern view that salvation is merely a religious experience? What is going on in the, in the judgment salvation? What is being judged in Genesis 6 and 7 besides man? Animals? Environment? Let's see how radical it is. Turn back to Genesis 6 and let's watch the language used. Sensitive, highly sensitive radio telescopes to get a word from the extraterrestrial source. You already had the word from the extraterrestrial source. The problem is that the rest of the universe, if it could speak, would come back to us on those radio telescopes and say, Get your act together, earthlings. We're waiting for you. Isn't that what we read in Romans 8? What does it say? The entire creation is waiting and waiting and waiting on us. So, conclusion of this fourth characteristic then. Salvation in the Bible is cosmic. It is not personal, just a little personal religious experience. Noah's had his personal religious experience, but it was related to a cosmic change. So is our salvation. Okay, the last thing. Because this is a mighty work of God, the only way we can interact with it is by faith. So let's turn to Hebrews 11. Chapter 11, verse 7, for a minute. Someday, 
I'd like to um, get the video thing here, and for those, those of you who would like to do this, I'd like to get the video of 2001, because Arthur C. Clarke, that helped produce that, really knew what he was doing. And those of you who remember how that movie starts, it starts with a very strange thing. It starts with two great symbols. It starts with this great flourishing music, and there's this ape in the film, and he throws this tool up in the air, and it's a stick that spins through the air. The film ends with a computer that takes over. You know what Arthur C. Clarke is saying? That man undoes himself with his dominion. What was the ape throwing in the air? What was that? It was the early tool. So Clarke is saying, look, the tool that man was to use to subdue has become the thing that reigns over him. But that's a perversion. Because in the, in the scriptures, man is to subdue. And the tool does overtake him because he misuses it and curses the earth. But watch. In Noah's story, who saved the animals finally? Who took care of the earth? God took care of it, but he took care of it by means of caring for man. Man is always the vehicle for taking care of the world. And this is extended to Jesus. Because when God saves and recreates, it's not done directly by God the Father. It's done because God the Son takes himself the form of a man. And he reigns over the universe as man, so man still is in that same position. God honors that creation design. But here we want to look at the last characteristic, that a salvation is always appropriated by faith. So we come to point five. Salvation happens and is secured by a faithful act. In Hebrews chapter seven, uh, chapter eleven, I mean, verse seven. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. Now let's look at that. Careful. Don't read that too fast. Do some observing. What do you notice it says? He be warned of God about things not yet seen. Now, why is that in there, do you suppose? Why are those words in that verse? A verse that has to do with faith? Put it together. Why would you write a sentence with those three words in it? If you were talking about faith. By faith... Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. Well, it's because he could, did not rely upon, he could not rely upon his own rationality. He could not rely upon his own sensory experience for salvation. Because the thing to come had not yet been seen. But he warned and in reverence prepared an ark for salvation of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You see, you could argue, if you don't think about the story in the wrong sense, we want us to think about it in the right sense, you could, you could say, well, gee, you know, Noah really did do some good acts, didn't he? I mean, he built that boat. It took him a while to do that. Isn't that a righteous act? Yes, it's a righteous act. Was that the act, however, that singled out here as the cause of his righteousness? No, it isn't. Again, look at the text carefully. By faith, Noah, he prepared the ark, but there's all these qualifications to the verb prepare. The qualifications are because he was warned about God by the things not yet seen, and in reverence, he acted. The source of his action was faith. Faith that God knew what he was doing. So, in review of, of what we've seen tonight, the first thing about faith is that Noah responded to the gracious warning. So here's grace, God's attribute of love behind it. Noah takes that warning seriously. It's still grace. Judgment hasn't fallen yet because the things not yet seen aren't seen. But he's building that ark and he's responding to God in grace. All right, let's turn over to 1 Peter for another description of what Noah's like. 1 Peter 2.5. Well, that's not the reference. Let's try 2 Peter 
Yes, Second Peter 2.5. Glad there's only two Peters. Okay. He preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. A preacher of righteousness. So, what was Noah's focus? He was responding to God's righteousness or his holiness. See all the attributes of God to which Noah was responding? And as a creature, the only way he can respond is by faith. You have to accept them. You have to act upon them. Because God was holy, the preacher of righteousness versus the world of the ungodly. What was the standard, the moral, ethical standard that Noah adhered to against his culture? He had to be a rebel to do this. No peer pressure. I mean, you talk about peer pressure. Seven people against the world or eight people against the world. Everybody else in the world marching to a different tune except eight people in one family. Laughing at them all the way. All right, so that's his response to the, the, the God. We've seen all these characteristics. Grace before judgment. Here's the perfect discrimination, the perfect judgment and separation. Then we said there was one way of salvation. And that testified to God's omniscience. And he responded, as it says back in Hebrews 7, he designed the ark according to things which he had not seen. And there's his response to omniscience. There's the third attribute. He didn't try to substitute his own plans. And then if there's a picture that you see in the story of him responding to this cosmic nature. Not only is it a personal experience for him, his sons and his sons' wives, but we said all of nature. And Noah was told to make this ark. He opened the door and he trusted the Lord to bring the gene pool to him. And so there you find the omnipotence of God. Because it's the omnipotence that will overturn nature. And Noah's responding to that in faith. So here's a picture that has lots of good stuff in it for what it looks like to be saved. How was Noah saved? He was saved not... And go through it negatively now. It's just another drill to kind of get it straight. Go through it, go through it negatively. What didn't he do at point one? He did not kiss it off. He recognized that God could interfere. And he'd better be prepared for the interference. That's offensive. That's offensive to an unregenerate carnal heart. That I don't like a God that interferes with my life. Noah didn't resist, in other words, interference. Let's go to the second thing. What could he have done at this point? when it was he, his family, his sons, his daughters-in-law against the world. He could have compromised the standard and said, well, gee, you know, I really don't want to be standing out here and everybody's kind of laughing at me. He could have gone along with the crowd. But he didn't. Because he went along with the primary environment, not the secondary environment. He could have modified the design of the ark. Well, I think it would look prettier if we did this to that. I mean, after all, look at the style of this thing. It looks like a coffin. Can't we jazz it up a little bit? So he could have then. Of course, he would have imbalanced the center of gravity and a few other things. But he could have. But he didn't. Because he's a man of faith. When God told him what he was going to do, he believed that God had sufficient reasons for doing it. And at this point, he could have gone out and tried to select the own a these animals. Hey, go get this guy. Well, this one looks good to me. He really didn't do that. It appears in the text that he was passive at that point, trusting what God had promised he was able also to perform. So, we have in, in capsule summary in this great story of the Noah's Flood, what we have here, folks, is, a, is an excellent, easy-to-remember picture of salvation. And that's why these three first, um, these fir three first events of the Bible set you up for the rest of it. And I urge you to just fill your mind with these stories. Read them over. Read them to your children. Use them to drill. 
Did Noah do this? Or did he do this? What if he had done that? It's a way of getting the stuff inside. All right, next week we're going to work with the, uh, with the covenant that God makes with Noah. And this concludes, will conclude our, the fourth of our events that we will study this year. Father, thank you again for leaving a testimony to your work. And we ask that the implications of what we're studying, we ask that those implications be spread abroad in every area of our lives as we seek to please you by submitting to your truths. In Christ, amen.